Now, if you've been with us for a little bit here, at least this year, then you know that this series called We Believe began about two months ago. And it truly is what I would like to call like a modern day catechism. Catechism simply meaning uh, spending some time to talk through the critical beliefs and doctrines, truths of the Christian faith. And this idea of sort of passing these truths on is integral to our discipleship model here, the way we want to sort of help people know Jesus and grow in him. And I thought it was sort of long overdue for us to have this dialogue from the front of the room. And so we've been spending time discussing, talking through, addressing objections, trying to motivate our hearts to understand what it is that we believe as Christians, at least the very big ideas, the very significant truths that define Christianity, and what the modern day application is for our lives. Because we deeply believe that all truth in the Bible is relevant truth. And it, it is God's truth meant to shape and hardwire our lives to this very day. It's not a, an ancient idea or a dusty doctrine. These beliefs are meant to have significant life-changing effect on our lives, and they're certainly meant to shape our lives and our burdens, our care for our neighbors. And so today we're continuing our We Believe series by looking at what the Bible says about Jesus and the meaning of life. This will be the last week that we spend on Jesus. We've spent some extra time here because he is worth every minute. And we're going to sort of wrap up this section by talking about Jesus and him being the meaning of life. Now, think through this. If you were to conduct a brief survey of world history, you'd find that there are several universal themes that we share as people. People wanting to be loved and accepted, the rhythms, whether you prefer them or not, and I hope you don't, of war and conflict. This is sort of a theme that defines humanity. I'm pretty sure there's never been a time in global history where there hasn't been some conflict or war taking place. We see in people these rhythms of sacrifice, where men and women sort of put their whole lives, everything they have, towards the devotion of a cause, we see folks who, in healthy ways and sometimes unhealthy ways, they desire power and wealth. Uh, these are some of the big ones, right? They're sort of the cosmic themes that are present in every film we watch in a theater like this, every book we read. These ideas sort of define humanity, for better or worse. And there are many more that I don't have time to share with you today, but there is one theme that really stands out, one that is incredibly relevant for our time this morning, and it is the idea of wanting to live forever. Wanting to live forever. I don't care how you phrase it, Eternal life, never wanting to die, wanting to live forever, whichever way you're talking about it, this idea of wanting to be alive and never ceasing to exist is a major theme in the human heart. Take, for example, most of the major world civilizations that have come before our world today. I'll just name a few. The great empires of Egypt, China, and the Western world, all the fiefdoms and kingdom stuff that went on across the Atlantic. Every one of these histories, these, these recorded histories, have some form or fashion of people trying to figure out how to live forever. The idea of wanting to live forever is not a new idea. It's an idea deeply embedded in our hearts. I'm sure most of you know, if you have lived in Florida for some time, that just an hour north of us, do any of you know what exists, exists an hour north of us here? From here? Seriously, you know where 95 is? The Fountain of Youth, right? The Fountain of Youth, think about that. It has been believed, obviously we know this is a bit of a, of a myth now, but that the Fountain of Youth, people were coming from all over the world, particularly Europe, to try to figure out how to not age, to have eternal life in the 1500s, right? That's when this began, or since the 1500s. People have believed that the Fountain of Youth is right here in St. Augustine. And I'm convinced, I know now, why our property taxes are so high here in Volusia County, because, because of our proximity to that well, right? Now, in some form or fashion, most of us, Right, or the great civilizations, they have longed or desired to live forever. Even look at our modern scientific culture. While we don't think we can physically live forever, modern medicine is deeply committed to prolonging our lives. In fact, it's, it's birthed some of these most significant discussions, ideas about being alive and, and truly living. Like, what's the difference between that? We know we can keep the body alive for a, a, a lot of time. 
But sometimes being alive is, is very different than actually living, quality of life. And so this is something that is replete in every society on earth. And what I find most interesting about this, what we're talking about today, is if you were to ask people, just in general, if they wanted to live forever, or they have loved ones that they have lost that they wished could live forever, they would likely say yes. However, when given an opportunity to consider eternal life, and we're going to talk about this from the angle of Jesus today, I find it interesting that people often reject it. It's sort of like we long for it, but then we have lots of stipulations on where we think we are able to find it or whether or not we believe it at all. And so last week we talked about how we believe Jesus is the meaning of life. And we looked at a teaching from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And there we learned that John referenced Jesus as the Word, the Lagos in the Greek. Because the Word was a concept that carried great weight with both the Jewish people and the Gentile culture, the Greek world. The idea of the center or the meaning of life was sort of bound up in this idea. The Jewish people understood God's word, his spoken word, as the way to life. It was the way God chose to reveal himself to us. It's how we know him and how we live. The Greek culture, and we talked about the origins of logic and reason, at least from the angle that we understand them today, our understanding of reason comes from this word right here in the Greek, the Lagos. And they believed, the Greek world, essentially the Gentile thinking world, they believed that there was some hidden reason or meaning that caused the existence of the universe, that was keeping things in order, and that actually created the meaning of life. Now, they disagreed on what that actually was, but the idea was that they believed there was something. They just weren't able to find it. And here you have this guy, John, who writes to both of these audiences some 2,000 years ago, explaining that the reason for this is Jesus. The, the meaning of life, our existence, is sort of validated and can be greatly enhanced by recognizing he is the author and the sustainer of life. And that's why we said he is the meaning of life. And so today I want to add a layer to that truth by talking about the quality of life that Jesus wants us to have. I think it's important to understand that he is the meaning of life, but I think it's equally as important to understand the implication that should have on our lives. Because if we do believe Jesus is life, then what that means is we should be the type of people who, in some form or fashion, are growing in that life. And so we're going to look at his bread of life teaching, at least a section of it, from John chapter 6. And this leads us to the we believe truth that I want to share with you today. There's just one. We believe Jesus can lead us to a quality of life that can only be found in him. I want to say that again. We believe Jesus can lead us to a quality of life that can only be found in him. What's interesting about John 6, it's a long chapter and we've only read a section of it, but it opens with this confused crowd of people trying to figure out who Jesus is. And the section of scripture that was just read to you by Joy on a worship team, that is actually, that, that follows the, one of the greatest miracles Jesus performed on earth. I hate to use the word perform because I think of like a guy pulling rabbits out of a hat, but I don't have a better word for it. He did something profound. And he fed the 5,000, that great story where he is able to meet one of the most substantial physical needs of a, a slew of people in front of him. He, he satisfies their physical desire to eat, which, as you know, is a desire and a need that we have in life. Without food, we die. And so you have this interesting conversation that goes on here. These miracles are happening. The name of Jesus is spreading. And in John 6, there's this confused crowd of people trying to figure out who Jesus is. And I sort of want to use an illustration here to begin to explain what's happening here. So many people believe the Louvre in France is home to some of the finest art of the world. In fact, most people think it is home to the finest art of the world. And this is in large part because it is the residing place of what is perhaps the most famous piece of art in the world. Anybody know what the name of that painting is? The Mona Lisa. There you go. On point today, right? Now, because of this, a lot of people visit to admire, to admire this painting. 
And for a moment, I want you to sort of put yourself in a hypothetical situation. Imagine that you have a really good friend who comes up to you and says, listen, I'm going to France next week, and I'm going to see the museum. I'm going to see the Louvre. And you're a good friend, so you drive this person to the airport, and you anxiously await his return. About a week later, you return to the airport to pick him up because you're a good friend. And as soon as you pick him up, you begin your drive home and you start asking the vacation questions. If any of you have ever been on a vacation, you know what these questions are. You ask things like, well, how was the flight? Uh, what was the food like? Tell me about the city, right? You just kind of popping off all these questions. And then you get to the question, like the one you really want to ask. And you say, how, how is the museum? I know your whole sort of reason for going over there was to see this famous museum of art. Tell me about the museum. And your friend excitedly starts to tell you how magnificent the place was. He says things like, the building was ice cold. The air conditioning was some of the best in the world, all right? And I noticed that out of all the buildings I've been in the world, there were more water fountains in that place than any other building I'd ever seen. It was like a waterfall of, of water fountains. And at first you hear this, and you're a little confused by the response, but you press on and, you know, push through this, and you say, okay, that sounds really great, but the, the painting, like the Mona Lisa, did you see the Mona Lisa? And your friend excitedly replies, yes. He says, it was totally awesome. You should have seen the protective casing it was in and all the guards that were around it. And there was this amazing plaque underneath it that gave its full history. And at this point, you are more confused, perhaps thoroughly confused. And you just pop the question that sort of defines the nature of this conversation. You say, hey, you went to France to visit the most famous art museum in the world to see what is perhaps the most famous painting in the world. And when you went there, you looked at everything, the water fountains, you assessed the air conditioning, you counted the guards, you saw the glass, you looked at all of this stuff, but you have yet to tell me about the Mona Lisa. Did you, did you do that? Did you look at that? And the person says, well, not really. I looked at everything else but the Mona Lisa. Now, after a while, you continue to have the conversation, and you realize that your friend has entirely missed the point of the trip of the museum. But your friend, for whatever reason, does not see the problem with this. They think that they saw the most amazing French water fountains in the world. They can't get past that. And you think to yourself, you've missed this. The experience of the museum has actually been lost. You know that the person hasn't experienced the museum at all, although this person believes they deeply did. And this is because they were focusing on all of the wrong things. They're not necessarily bad things. They were just the wrong things. And that's pretty much what's happening here in John 6 when it comes to this mass crowd of people trying to figure out who Jesus is and what he has come to offer them. And we know this because of what John says in John chapter 6, verses 25 through 26. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. This is a key statement that Jesus gives us that John records. And what John is telling us here is the crowds missed the life Jesus offered them because they were focused on the wrong type of bread. They had entirely missed what was actually happening here because they were looking at all the wrong things. And in this case, it's the bread, it's the food. And here's how this is sort of in a similar way to the Louisville illustration I just shared with you. Here's how this makes sense. The people in our story think that they've truly experienced Jesus and what he has come to offer them because they've had their bellies filled with fish and loaves. And while this is important, remember, we need to eat. Their focus on their immediate life needs has literally caused them to miss the, the more significant, the more substantial reason that Jesus had fed them like this. In short, what's happening here, and this is the true of, true of every sort of idol, anything we sort of start to love more than Jesus himself, what happens here is Jesus has an incredible amount to offer us. In this case, he's got much more to offer them than just bread. But they can't see past that. So they're sort of settling for the bread. They can't see it. 
sort of the essence of an idol, is we want something, maybe even from God, that we think will fulfill us like God, but actually can't fulfill us like God. That's what's happening here. And this is around a very common need, food, like we need to eat. So this isn't even like a want, this is a need. And although the crowds are confused, I said that a moment ago, I want to point out that I think they're pretty smart because they figured out that the disciples left the other side of the lake without Jesus and have arrived on their side of the lake with Jesus. Remember, we just performed this miracle. And the disciples take the slow road to this side of the lake that they're on, John tells us. But Jesus, we know, if we read the passages prior to this, Jesus walks across the lake on water. So that whole episode takes place. This crowd doesn't even know about it. But nonetheless, they figured out that Jesus got here in some unique way. The chapters before this tell us he walked the water. The crowds are confused, but I think they're intelligent because they're mindful that something is happening here. They're aware of the fact that something powerful is happening here, and they have likely at this point heard the name of Jesus. So they do what anybody would have done in this case. They find Jesus, and they start to ask him questions about his lake crossing. They know he fed a ton of people, and they're wanting to know how he got over here so quickly. And they likely knew at this point that they were dealing with somebody very special, someone who was quickly becoming known as a miracle worker, someone who had the power to do great things. This is sort of where Jesus is right now in his society. Yet they still cannot understand the greatest miracle he has come to offer them. An abundant life on this earth and an eternal life in the next. And so the crowds begin their line of questioning by calling Jesus rabbi. Here's how they open up to him. And I find this really interesting because in the Bible to call somebody rabbi or the idea of a rabbi is that you sort of submitted yourself to follow them. You are married to their teachings and walking life in the pedigree of this teacher. That's what a rabbi literally is. It's a teacher. And what's interesting about this is calling somebody your rabbi means you have submitted yourself to their teachings, but these folks here did not. Like The disciples did. We know that. They are, they are with him. They are literally going everywhere Jesus is going, but these folks have not. Yet they, they sort of call his name out, rabbi. It's almost a declaration of lordship without really understanding who he really is and what he has come to do. And so ironically, these same people claiming Jesus as their rabbi here, if you read the rest of the Gospel of John, they will spend the rest of this chapter then disputing everything he's teaching them. Later on in this story, we find out that the teaching of Jesus' bread of life teaching, what we're looking at here, is actually given in a synagogue Capernaum, while several adversarial religious leaders are present. So the story moves into like a, a really intense dialogue about his teachings here. And I say all this to say there's a very confused and contentious backdrop behind Jesus' words here. And this is the springboard Jesus uses to give one of his most famous teachings, the bread of life discourse. Him literally saying, I am the bread of life. You know, eat of me and you will live forever. This is one of the reasons we take communion. The idea is very substantial. There is life in the type of bread he's talking about here. And you have this well-known miracle, multiplying fish and loaves to feed the 5,000 earlier in this chapter. This is the backdrop to all of this. And so these folks come to Jesus, and they're asking him how he got across the lake. But Jesus, being Jesus, doesn't answer that question. He begins his teaching by answering a question the crowds didn't ask. This is what Jesus does, John 6, 27. He says, Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, earlier in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 3, Jesus does this same thing, uses the same technique with, with uh, Nicodemus. He has this uncanny ability to answer questions that people have before they even ask them. And I find great hope in this because there are times in our lives when we are confused about things. There are times in our lives where maybe we are struggling or suffering through something, and we just wish we had an answer to something. 
We wish we knew how to proceed. We wish we knew how to make things better. We wish we knew how to have hope or joy restored to us. But oftentimes there's a great chasm between where we are and where we want to be. And what I love about this passage and this rhythm that Jesus has is that he shows us he can actually speak into our lives even when we don't even understand the nature of our lives. With Nicodemus, he cut the nut and went right to the point of what he was talking about. Here he does the same thing. He, he doesn't even address his travels as much as he wants to help these folks understand that they're working for a food that spoils. They've placed a value on something that is not going to last. And he wants them to understand the difference between food that spoils and an eternal bread. And so with Jesus, there's no beating around the bush. What I love about this is even in our times of despair, even when we don't know what to ask, we see here that Jesus knows how to answer. He has created our hearts. He knows what our hearts are searching for. And he knows what we need to hear and, and understand and grow in to grow in him. There's even hope in our confusion, which is what's wonderful about this passage. And in his response, he rightfully points out to the crowds that they're looking at water fountains, not the Mona Lisa. That's what he says. Like the crowds before them, and this is very common in the Gospel of John, they're just coming to get something out of him. And what the folks usually want is something on their own terms. Here they want to be fed again. And it's always short-sighted. It's sort of like Jesus comes to offer them great and amazing things, and they short-sell him, the process, and his life when they reach for this incredibly low-hanging fruit. Food matters, but not as much as eternity. They're enamored with the fact that Jesus can feed them that he can multiply food quantities, but they've missed the greater truth this feeding was meant to reveal to them. Jesus is using this miracle to lead them to eternal life. And what's sad here is they're so consumed with the matters of earthly existence that they can't see beyond them. In other words, their very gift of their lives right now has sort of blinded them to a greater life, or at least a life that sort of continues beyond this one. They can't see beyond the, the affairs of today. And consequently, they ask of Jesus a great deal less than what he wants to offer them. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. We're likely not hungry, most of us anyways. If you are hungry, you should let us know that. We have mechanisms to take care of that here. Most of us probably didn't come into this room hungry. And if we did, we likely will leave and have lunch, okay? So maybe the, the details of this particular circumstance are not relevant, like you've never gone without food. Maybe you have. But what I want to say here is there's a deeper parallel here to think about. If we're being honest, we should have a great deal of empathy for the crowds in this story. I'm not saying this to sort of judge them as much as I am saying they sort of represent us in a different season of life. Because we've all had seasons in our lives where the pressing nature of our circumstances on earth really can cause us to miss the bigger picture of an eternity in Jesus. Think about this. It's very easy to forget that our current lives as we know them are always changing and they are very finite. They have an end to them and our circumstances have an end to them. So what this means is our lives, our circumstances in life, whether they are mountaintop or valley, are also subject to change because they are finite. Nothing lasts forever in this life. I wish some things did, but they don't. Just like the seasons, things come and go. Our houses come and go. Most of us are probably not from Florida. My wife is actually from Florida. She's the only person in Volusia County I know that is from Florida. Most everybody is from someplace else. And if you come from someplace else, and maybe you're saying, I'm from Florida too. If you are, wait here. We're going to take a picture of you so I can prove it to the rest of the county, right? If you've come from someplace else, you probably had a house or an apartment. It came and went, right? Our jobs, the average American is changing jobs more frequently than ever. Our jobs, they come and go. Sadly, even the relationships in our lives, a great many of them can come and go. Times of plenty, they come and they go. Sickness comes and goes. Health comes and goes. Our children, if you have kids, if not, you are somebody's child. They come to us through birth, 
And then they grow up. And in our real world, they come and go. At least they should, right around the 18 to 20 mark, right? <laughs> they come and go. In this life, everything has an ebb and a flow to it. That's what Jesus is trying to point out to the crowd. He says, why focus on the come and the go? Why focus on the physical bread? Because it comes and goes. When you can focus on the one who is sovereign over the comings and goings of your life. He's not saying the bread doesn't matter. He's just trying to lift them out of their sort of short-sightedness here. And that's why it's really important for us to find the balance in this passage and how we see our lives. Like the crowds, we need the bread to live. There are things we have to have in life to live. Just about everything I mentioned is a real need. Health and homes and food. I'm not trying to be like naive. I'm not saying this this stuff isn't real. I'm just saying we have to make sure that our earthly existence doesn't ever come to the place where we can't see beyond it. The blessings and the pains we endure in this life are very real. And I want you to hear what I'm about to say because I want you to hear what I'm not saying right now. When we talk about these ideas and when Jesus is dealing with this issue of bread, he really does care about these people and these matters. I don't think he's being trite here. Jesus cares about our earthly existence. That said, if we as believers disconnect those matters from the eternal picture that Jesus is painting here, then we will likely be wrecked when the trials of life come or naively proud when the blessings come. Both of those places are extremes. If you're proud, the rug will come out from under your feet at some point. And if you're wrecked, you will start to undervalue who you are and who God has made you to be because circumstances become the God of your life, whatever they may be, not the God of the circumstances. And so in all of this, Jesus challenges us to be less focused on the bread, whatever your version of that is right now. Mine too. The circumstances of life, and he wants us to be more focused, right? Circumstances matter, but he wants us to be more focused on the one who provides us the bread the one who holds the circumstances of our lives in his hands. And so you see in this teaching, Jesus is not, at least I believe he's not undermining the importance of their need to eat. He's just trying to lift his hearers above a material understanding of his miracle. And he's telling them to stop focusing on the loaves and the fish and start thinking about a food that lasts forever, the bread of life. And Jesus offers them and us this metaphor for a reason. It represents life, but not just any life. And this is sort of the piggyback from last week. We talked a lot about life last week. But today I want to talk about a quality of life, or at least this is how I want to begin wrapping up. The bread of life Jesus is talking about here is meant to show us there's a a very big difference between truly living and just existing. I want to read John 6, 32 through 33 for you. Here we read this. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, that reference there is obviously to the Old Testament when the Israelites were in the wilderness and, you know, God is sort of providing food for them, like hand over fist. He's feeding them. And so he references this this story to give them a bigger framework to understand who the one providing the bread is and what the bread actually is. And what's interesting about this very dialogue we're discussing here is that it proves the very fact of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. The very fact that the crowds are coming back to Jesus for more bread after he feeds the 5,000, it proves his point before he even makes it. They're hungry again. He has done an incredible miracle. He has fed the masses, and they got hungry again. This is how life is, right? Our circumstances can return. They come and they go. And so Jesus' miracle in one breath revealed his power to sustain physical life. He showed that he can completely do that. But he's also, I think, trying to show them how fragile and temporal the things of this life really are. Eat lunch today, and at seven tonight, the belly will growl again. And so in this teaching, Jesus is drawing a very clear distinction between existing on earth, and there's lots of ways to say this, but I like the John 10 idea, and abundant living. It's sort of like overflowing living is what he talks about. 
And we know that he's talking about something far more than just existence because of the Greek language. In Greek, there are two very specific ways that you speak about life. And I'll briefly mention them to you here this morning. The first kind of life talks about life from the physical side. This is the word bios in the Greek. If you have read any kind of an English book or been in a science class, this is where we get our English word biology from. Ology simply meaning the study of and bios meaning life. Biology is the scientific discipline that studies matter, living matter, and it refers to existing. And so when you study the biological makeup of animals or human beings, you're studying the mechanics, the the very things that make life life there. Things like its origins, how it reproduces, what it eats and where it eats, and how it behaves. You're not necessarily concerned with, for example, whether or not a zebra is happy with its mate. We can't ask a zebra that, obviously. You just are concerned with figuring out how they find a mate and reproduce. This is the essence of biology. We're examining all of the facets of life, and that's a very important element of life. Because without this idea, we wouldn't be here. This is part of who we are, bios. The second kind of life talks about a certain quality of life. And this is a word that is zoe. This is the word John uses in verse 33. He's not just talking about existence. He's talking about something a little more significant. He uses this word to describe the kind of life Jesus brought down from heaven to give to the world. And he's referencing a passage in the Old Testament where that bread from heaven was literally what sustained and caused God's people to live abundantly. Without it, they were going to be less of who God had created them to be. This idea in verse 33 refers to the quality of life a person has. And it is much deeper than just existence. It really describes the substance and the meaning of life. And so let me illustrate this in a couple of ways. Bios says uh, people must eat food in order to live. You must do that, right? But a Zoe type of life says, but if you eat really good steaks from the Midwest, your quality of eating is much, much better. If you are a vegetarian, great leaves from the Pacific Northwest, okay? (laughs) Trying to cover all my bases here. I'm going for the cow, though, I'm telling you now, okay? (laughs) Bio says, I get married and reproduce to keep the human race going. Zoe says, I want to know, did any of you get married for that? Were you thinking, like, I'm going to make a contribution to the global uh, population and get married? (laughs) That was probably not your driving thrust in getting married, right? That's bios. It's important because we're not here without that, but it's not life necessarily. Zoe says, I get married because I want love. I want to find somebody I can spend my days with. Or I want to have children because they are a precious gift and they will challenge me in ways that are beyond rival, but they will also fulfill me in powerful and amazing ways, right? Bios says the sun rises to warm the earth. But Zoe says, I can see beauty in the sunrise, though, right? We recognize stuff beyond the photosynthesis happening with the plants around us. We can actually enjoy the beauty of the plant, right? Bios says, I like baseball. But Zoe says, I'm a Yankee fan, right? (laughs) You know my my take on that. Which, by the way, we have some Red Sox fans here, and I just want to point out that the Yankees are crushing them in the series they're in right now. So, you know, if you are visiting and you are a Red Sox fan, you can come to church here. We just will not baptize you. That's the, way that, that's the way that works. I'm just telling you now, right? There's watching baseball, then there's really watching baseball, right? You get my drift here, right? Somebody said it's wrong, but I disagree. That's totally right, all right? Bios and Zoe, I can go on all day like this. There is a form of life, and then there is actually pressing into what that life is meant to be. Simply put, there's a huge difference between existing and truly living. That's what I'm trying to say here. And it is likely that everyone listening to this in some way knows exactly what I'm talking about from an emotional and spiritual perspective. You can probably think of areas or times in your life, maybe right now, where you were like, you were living in something, but not necessarily thriving or or there was a lack of abundance in that thing. That's what we're talking about here. The type of life Jesus is talking about here is one filled with meaning. 
It's one filled with purpose, and it's one defined by joy. That doesn't mean that we don't, you know, have challenges to those things, but it simply means we recognize more than mundane life on earth. Life is nothing but, any, anything but mundane. And when you have life in Christ, it sort of takes that to a whole new level. We were never meant to settle for less than this. Yet for various reasons, a lot of us, and I'm in this camp, we, at times we do. We just settle for lesser things. We want the physical bread at the expense of the eternal bread. And what I love about this passage is that it ends, or at least this section we're talking about today, really ends with some really great hope. Because after Jesus explains this, and he goes through this story with Moses, and this idea of life is thrown out there, some of Jesus' audience, they realize the difference between these two types of life. In John 6, 34, they hear this and they say, Sir, always give us that kind of bread. That's what they say. They say, man, I didn't even realize there was a bread of life like this. We want that one. And so what I want to stress here as we close is not that we have seasons of life where we, we fall into the mundane. That's just life. That's part of life. What I want to stress here is that there can be hope in that. And so if you truly long to do more than just exist, and I hope you do, then you have to know Jesus has your back here. He, he actually wants that for you more than you want that for yourself. And he has died for you so you can experience God in that way. His death meant our life. And so think about this as we move into our response time. Take Jesus at his word when he says, I am the bread of life. That'll be what is behind me for our time of sort of contemplation and meditation this morning. Really take him at his word when he says, I'm the bread of life. Learn to love feeding on him daily. And there's some ways you can do this by spending some time in his word, by praying. And don't miss this when I say this, following him with other people. Don't just pray and read the Bible disconnected from other people. You are meant to thrive with other people. Walking in relationship with men and women who love Jesus for the sake of the mission of God. So don't just hear study the Bible and pray. Very important. That is meant to be done with other people. Jesus is always with other people. His disciples are other people. These rhythms, these disciplines, this feeding, meant to be done at a kitchen table with other people. This is how you experience God. Study his word, pray, and be with other people in meaningful ways. And I promise you, if you start doing this, you're going to recognize the difference between existing and just living. And if you've been existing, when you sense what real living is, things will change. If you've been doing anything less than that, I promise you, when you drink from that greater well, you will want nothing less than that anymore. So make the choice today. Believe in Jesus for the first time. Trust in him. Maybe you're hearing the spread of life teaching and you're thinking, I've never really thought about him as like the meaning for life. or I have great objection to that. Or That's great. We love to talk about that stuff. Let's get coffee on Tuesday. If you have an objection there, we'd love to chat about that. Maybe you're here saying, I've been in Jesus a long time, but I just don't sense this anymore. I can't feel this. I promise you, if you're in Jesus, there is life in you. We just have to figure out what's damning that up. Jesus will never leave your life and your soul hungry. So ask him this morning how to be filled up in this way. And I pray you'd really focus your heart's attention and your mind on this truth as we move into response time. Pray with me this morning.